0: the Energy Markets Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Lee, and today we're going to delve into nuclear power's role in the clean energy transition. With us today is Matt Crozat, Executive Director of Strategy Policy Development with the Nuclear Energy Institute. Matt, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, these are pretty auspicious times for nuclear power. There seem to be a dozen or more various interests pursuing next generation, small modular reactor designs. And uh, it looked like Southern companies, uh, Georgia Power was going to have the first unit of the Vogel project expansion online. Are are we seeing the oft sought uh, nuclear energy renaissance?
1: Well, I'm old enough to remember the last renaissance, so I try not to use that terminology because that's been pre-branded. But we are seeing a remarkable range of interest in what nuclear energy can be for the future of the power system and the energy more broadly. Um, We have, as a starting point, all all these utilities that have commitments to be carbon-free by mid-century. And that's creating a lot of pressure looking for technologies that can help bring low carbon solutions into the portfolio, which also requires making sure you have the ability to provide the reliability and resilience in the grid that we'll need to to have that be successful. And nuclear is standing out as one of the the possible technologies that can do a lot of the roles alongside of wind and solar and batteries and these others. But uh, it's really becoming something that is looking I need something that looks like nuclear to make the system work, and a lot of people are coming to this conclusion at the same moment. We have new technologies that are you know, offering nuclear in different packages than before, and that it's really changing the calculus as people are approaching this possibility.
0: Even some environmental group are starting to see a different light when it comes to nuclear. So, so as I mentioned, um, the Vogel expansion is. Very close to having the first unit come online. They thought they would have it online by the time we're speaking now, but there was a degraded hydrogen seal that they had to repair. Um, and um, the second expansion unit is, is close behind uh, in terms of coming online. But it's it, the project's years overdue and costs have more than doubled. Uh, last thing I saw was it had gone up to $35 billion uh, in costs, and other contemporaneous efforts to build new nuclear reactors in neighboring South Carolina and Florida were scuttled because of rising costs. While it costs consumers in those states millions of dollars, they did not incur the added costs of completing those units. Uh, Vogel was able to press on uh, in, in the face of a doubling in cost, but there seems to be a growing backlash. Is the Vogel experience the death knell for new boiling water reactors or SMRs the future of the industry?
1: Well, so a couple of things along there. The, the actual design that um, being pursued and employed in Georgia is what's called a, a pressurized water reactor. We have a lot of these in operation right now, about two-thirds of the U.S. leader of these design, but this is the new one. Uh, we hadn't done one with this design itself, uh, and we hadn't been building them for quite a while. And what we ran into was the realization that um, the, the task of standing up that supply chain and that workforce was more daunting than I think was appreciated going into the project. You, you do get at something that has been, I think, a, a real takeaway from the industry however over the last um 10 years or so which is that thinking about ways to provide nuclear that's not at the thousand megawatt unit instead something that's more in the hundreds uh, or even less begins to change the the economic calculus that the amount of upfront capital at risk is just a scale uh lower and it creates a different risk profile for companies trying to understand how nuclear fits along with their other technologies. So I think having nuclear available in smaller packages it opens the possibilities for um, a business environment that is able to address the risk profile and have it manage it more along the lines of the kinds of power plants they're used to building in the past.
0: Well, you know, I think I can thank the nuclear industry for the trajectory my, my career took over the last, uh, 30 plus years. Uh, my first newspaper job was in Matagorda County, Texas mm-hmm. in the mid 1980s. Um, and I had the, op- where I had the opportunity to cover what at the time was one of the last new nuclear power plants to be built in the United States. There was the South Texas. Nuclear project in Matagorda County, and I guess uh, Comanche Creek was also close to being finished at that point. Um, but uh, you know, the, the the safety issue was was paramount back then, and uh, uh, there were, of course, lingering concerns in the wake of the nineteen seventy nine Three Mile Island meltdown. Those were exacerbated by the Chernobyl nuclear power plant disaster that had just occurred. <laughs> And uh, STP officials were straining to explain how the Soviet Union's graphite-cooled reactor design was different from the reactor design under construction then. And then in 2011, we saw Fukushima meltdown after a tsunami uh, caused by a really powerful earthquake that moved the entire Japanese archipelago uh, uh, meters. Uh, But this prompted Germany to move away from nuclear power completely on safety grounds, uh, despite having to up their carbon footprint by activating fossil fuel units to replace it. So what do you say to those who maintain that nuclear power is too dangerous to pursue?
1: So it's interesting that at the same time you've had countries like Germany move away from nuclear, we've seen A broader set of countries turn to nuclear as part of the solution for a lower carbon future and energy security. And and a large part of that is actually the safety record. Um, These are high profile events, but these plants are operated in a safe manner. In the U.S. in particular, has the highest levels of safety that we've seen in the history of the the industry. as We've really focused on those metrics as part of the core of operating these plants. Worldwide, we've seen even in Europe, countries in Eastern Europe in particular, uh, looking at nuclear as how they're going to move away from coal and driving their economies. And I think what that comes to is this I think, almost generational realization that um, there is a climate problem that is really looming over um, these societies. And you know, nuclear is part of that solution. And so looking for different ways of designing nuclear that learns from what we've experienced in the past, that has increased use of passive systems to ensure safety, um, having smaller units that have less nuclear material in the first place, Always sort of make sure that um, I can have a safety profile that's consistent with the widespread deployment to address this larger looming crisis that the, the countries are seeing on the climate front.
0: There's got to be at least a dozen interests that are pursuing some sort of uh, small modular reactor design? uh,
1: Do do you have a definitive count? Um, Ballpark it? So I think if you look in the United States and Canada, you can think on the order of a couple of dozen of projects that are being in some stage of development. What's most interesting, I think, as a starting point is looking at this range of support that we've seen from the U.S. government in trying to get some of these first movers going. So there have been efforts in the past to bring some of these small modular reactors through the licensing process, and now that's broken more towards initial deployment. There's a project um, that will be cited at the Idaho National Laboratory to build the first small modular reactor plant um, of the new scale design, which has been um, really trying to think very fundamentally about how to use a small reactor to have safety and um, uh, at the core of the, the system and uh, create a, a power plant that can be widely deployed, and that's been one of the first uh, designs. We're seeing more than that too. Um, we have more interest now in, in trying to think more creatively about the the fuels that you can use in a reactor, the way you cool it, and kind of opening the the, the business range of opportunities for some of these designs. These are advanced reactors that are seeing um, support from the advanced reactor demonstration program from the Department of Energy to help fund some of these first projects as a demonstration. This is a very different profile from what we've seen in the past of good ideas that were being talked about in PowerPoint presentations are now turning into actual projects with support behind them. And that's a really exciting place to be.
0: New scale's design seems to be the furthest along. They actually got their design approved earlier this year by the NRC, right?
1: They're the furthest along through the licensing process. Um, we expect others that are kind of derivations of the same light water reactors that we have in operation now. Um, those will be in a position to move relatively quickly as well. Those that are reasonably really small, some of these micro reactors, could also be ones to move quickly just because there's so little material there. So I think we are seeing real progress through the the licensing and also now over the commercial side of trying to see how these can be demonstrated uh, efficiently and in a timely manner.
0: NewScale began the process at NRC about five years ago. Um, did in, in the give and take with NRC, did they have to change the design, tweak it in any way, or or, or was it pretty much accepted as filed?
1: No, I mean, there, there was... I mean, their interactions with NRC go back well before that even. Um, They were in um, pre-application conversations for a number of years before they submitted an application. Um, And so part of that is trying to ensure that when you reach the actual formal application and review, that there's an understanding of the issues that need to be worked on and the information needed to adjudicate them. So that was a rather time-consuming process. Um, but you know, along the way, the design itself has evolved. The core f- approach to the design has been consistent of the, a uh, reactor in a large pool of water with um, natural circulation of the, of the heat. But they have changed a little bit how they are increasing the output from the plant. So there are some times you go back and revise it. But the, the core approach, how they're uh, moving forward with this design has been accepted. And that's been a real step forward.
0: It's interesting to see all the progress that New Scale is is uh, has been making. But yet, you know, they lost half of their market cap in the last year, despite the NRC signing off on uh, on the review um, so it would appear the the market is not so optimistic on the outlook for its design or is the market simply skeptical of the whole idea of small modular reactors?
1: Well, I'll also observe is the same time period we've seen interest rates go from approximately zero to something well north of that and I think that changes how you look at uh, the kinds of companies that are making long-term investments uh, for designs and so I think that's as much a the reflection of the financial environment which we can find ourselves as the technology itself. So when we look at the, the, the kinds of analyses for the power system going forward, we see a strong role for nuclear. And I think in particular about the recent report from the Department of Energy, um, commercial liftoff for advanced reactors. And there they're pointing to something on the order of needing uh, 200 additional gigawatts of, of new nuclear. And that's on top of the 100 or so we have currently. And so I think we're in this moment of realizing that there is a real huge role for deployment of new technologies and trying to get through those first demonstrations and first deployments to create the commercial confidence around them is where we find ourselves at the moment. And, um, you know, as we see the the economic landscape evolve as it tends to to do, it, it can sort of change the time horizons for, for certain investors of what they're looking to happen in the next quarter versus over the next decade and two decades. And I think that's what we're seeing at the moment.
0: I'm not a scientific expert on this by any means, but I do follow the, the news reporting on, on this technology. And it and, and it really seems to me that as, as various small modular reactor uh, designs have advanced, they've run into cost overruns, uh, similar to the problem that plagued the first generation of nuclear reactors. And with high interest rates, that's, it, as you noted, I mean, that, that's going to be an issue, right?
1: Well, we haven't seen overruns because we haven't actually had any projects that are actually far enough along there. We have seen well, in the cost environment reflecting the inflationary Pressures and much in the same way, you know, I've I see the the conversations taking place around the offshore wind projects that were there are also I think a a lot of steel and concrete, a lot of commodities, and a lot of upfront investment, and so I I think that you know the, the overall need to create a large capital investments into the power system in order to enable this transition to low carbon, this is going to be an ongoing challenge regardless of technology. And I think that we're seeing the nuclear side is trying to rationalize that, see how you can uh, find opportunities for reducing costs, but recognizing that the, the most efficient way to bring costs down is to start building lots of them. we've we've shown a very good history of demonstrating that building one of something and stopping is not efficient to bring costs down. And I think there's a greater appreciation now that what these smaller designs can enable is thinking in terms of the economies of serial production, as opposed to economies of making it big through scale. And I think that's where trying to create a pathway to you know, make sure that you, it's not just one done, but you're sort of creating a, the opportunity to get better over time is a, a real fundamental change in how we're looking at these technological opportunities.
0: Well, regardless of how the market uh, views SMRs, you're still going to have the nuclear waste disposal problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've kicked this can down the road throughout my 35 years here in Washington, starting with the Conference agreement on the 1987 Nuclear Waste Policy Act amendments, the so-called "Stick It to Nevada" bill, that mm-hmm. uh, became a centerpiece of Harry Reid's rise to power in the Senate. Um, how close were we to having Yucca Mountain ready to start accepting fuel? Were we years away, or
1: you know, was it? Oh, f- it was years away. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, there was a i was in the department of energy um, when the, the secretary chu made the decision that yucca mountain was not a workable solution and halted that project and i think that then uh that was not something that was revisited um in the trump administration either so i think that was been the, the method by which we arrived at that solution was something that was really difficult for the um, the political environment, especially in that state to define uh, to a solution. We've been working, I think towards trying to create a different opportunity for partnership and you know, working towards what we call consent-based citing, where rather than the federal government's trying to impose something from from on high instead trying to, identify places where communities see this as an opportunity for their commercial uh, opportunities. This model has been successful in Scandinavia, where we have much more progress in both Finland in particular, and and Sweden's not far behind of developing this. And so we think that there are better ways to approach these conversations. In the meantime, the used fuel is safe where it is. I mean, it's in steel and concrete line casts, all you know, the, the material itself is basically a ceramic so it's kind of like a really heavy form of what you have an original coffee mug it's not going anywhere it's just there it's hot and so um you, you want to keep something some shielding between it but this is not an efficient approach we do need to find ways to sort of start to collect especially the material that's a, a reactors that are closed and start you know moving demonstrating that this is not something that the needs to be an intransigent problem. This is something that we really can make progress on. And we have models internationally and even in some of our other parts of our uh, Department of Energy that we can build upon. And I'm looking forward to seeing some, some of this conversation being rebooted coming out of the Department of Energy as they begin to find a better way to approach this long-term strategy.
0: Well, it's not like we don't have any nuclear waste storage at all. We've right? got the Waste Isolation Project in in Carlsbad. And the people in Carlsbad, New Mexico, love having those jobs. And I I guess uh, Holtec International a couple months ago got uh, the NRC's okay for a temporary spent fuel repository uh, at at another community in New Mexico that apparently would welcome the jobs. But the the state, I guess, wants to disallow the temporary storage facility until the federal government has reached a permanent storage solution um
1: well elaborate on that sure i mean i think importantly i I wouldn't call what um some proposed as a repository because that tends to imply the, the, the final resting place okay so instead we think of it as an interim storage capability but i think the whole chicken and egg problem here is that if it's going to be interim you need to have some assurances that there is a pathway towards something that happens after the internal period. Right. And that's where, um, because of the the very slow actions on the part of the Department of Energy to cite a repository, it's difficult to create those assurances. And that's where I think the the, the state has um you know has some concerns about enabling this kind of a, a path forward without knowing what happens on the out the other side. And this is where I think the Department of Energy does have the, the, the task to go and begin to you know, reboot those conversations and in that process to work towards identifying what a more permanent solution looks like. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, there's at least one uh, modular design out there that uh, would
1: use spent fuel, right? Um, you familiar mm-hmm. with that one? Well, there's a number of designs over the years that are designed to take um, components of used fuel, at least, and use that as fuel for new um, generation. We think of these as part of recycling. Uh, France has a version of that right now in its um, current light water reactor fleet, where they take um, recover materials from... The operating plants turn them into fuel. Well, to you, you, you're, in. I'm
0: sorry to interrupt, but you're anticipating yep. my next question. Oh, like I see. Processing. I'm, I'm not talking about reprocessing. I, I thought I saw that there are actually, uh, there's actually an SMR design contemplated that would use the used fuel uh, to generate electricity.
1: I wouldn't expect that anyone's going to use that as the, the first uh design right so the first project is probably going to be on something more traditional fuel forms um i think though that what's interesting is once you begin to look at different technologies for reactors you can begin to think more broadly about what can what the fuel cycle looks like both in terms of um the extent to you ability to use materials that are you know currently not feasible or to think about different forms of uh waste as well and so. I think rather than any one design using um, spent fuel as a, a starting point, I think what's more interesting holistically is how the range of technological ideas is really opening up how I can approach some of these questions that have been kind of intractable in the past.
0: Are we the only country that as a national policy does not reprocess spent fuel?
1: No, not at all. Um, As a matter of fact, only a handful reprocess right now. One of the things to keep in mind about reprocessing is that it still requires the creation of a permanent repository for there's still waste. Uh, it's, it's a different form. I'm reusing some material that's in there that would otherwise be lost. So there's benefits for it, but there, it doesn't get me out of the need for having to have a long term solution. And even uh, France, uh, in particular, is working on uh, finding that location for its own purposes, Japan as well. And so there are lots of reasons to look seriously at recycling material, but it, it doesn't offer the promise of saying, well, and then it makes the whole challenge go away. I still need to, to deal with the material. But as you pointed out, that's true of a lot of parts of the system, including what we've seen from our weapons programs, too. And so this is, is not something that is insolvable. Uh, we just but we, we need to have a different conversation about how to get to a solution.
0: Is there any discussion on the hill you uh NEI has great partners with uh, public power and and mm-hmm. rural co-ops in terms of advocating for a solution as well as NARUC. NARUC yep. would love to see this resolved um is there are there any discussions at all going on or is it just too fractious there to even contemplate
1: So it's I wouldn't say practice. So the, the ball is very much in the core of the tower of energy because they they have the responsibility to um, take the fuel from power plant operators and just manage it permanently. Um, but what I think is really interesting about the conversation on Capitol Hill is that there's more bipartisan support for nuclear energy to find, you know, than we've ever seen before. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for progress on the spent fuel issue, but it's not front and center. You know, what we've seen over the last two Congresses is more support for deploying nuclear than we've seen anytime since the 1950s. You know, the, the tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act that are designed to spur carbon free energy production include nuclear in the same way it includes wind and solar the same incentives are available for for new nuclear in a way that just has never been there before. That is a dramatically different signal about how the federal policy making is viewing the role of nuclear. And between the support for demonstrating new technologies, for deploying these um, new nuclear capabilities, you've seen a threat of support uh, on both sides of the aisle and both houses of Congress that really creates a strong foundation for thinking about nuclear as part of a long-term solution. I think with that kind of a foundation, I think you're a different place to approach how to think about some of these um, uh, political questions around spent fuel that is just a much healthier place to be as we're thinking about not so much which one spot in the map we're going to focus on. Instead, how does this fit as part of a long-term strategy for a lower carbon reliable energy system? And that's a, I think, has me really optimistic about how this conversation might evolve in the next few years.
0: Well, we do have something on on the administrative side. I mean, uh, we we saw some incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act, right? Uh, do you want to? I'm hazy on that. Do you want to elaborate sure. on that for
1: us? So, for years, we've had um, tax credits to incentivize. Especially wind and solar production. Wind has as a production tax credit where um, for the first 10 years of operation of a new windmill, it's eligible for some about $30 a megawatt hour of um of a tax credit. On the solar side is more on the investment. Um so if you invest in a solar facility, the you can apply for essentially a tax credit rebate on your investment. Well, the Inflation Reduction Act did and say, well, look, we'll take both of those credits, we'll put them both on the books, and say, as long as you're carbon free, you're eligible to choose whichever one you want. And so, all of a sudden, this creates a much more valuable incentive for nuclear as well as for other technologies too. But let me focus on nuclear, of course. Um, and this is just something we had not seen before: the scale of support and the, and the notion that. We don't need to be focusing on picking individual technologies, but instead saying, if you're carbon-free, that's part of a solution we want to encourage. And that's a big, big step forward.
0: And I know when I was at Exelon, that was something that uh, we would love to have seen at that time, but that was just a pipe dream back
1: in those days. No, it, and it really has been just a signal of how far the conversation has come. And I think... To the point you alluded to earlier, it's not just been the industry pointing to the role for nuclear. We've seen the kinds of um, energy systems analyses, the modeling tools that are trying to figure out, well, how do I work towards a low carbon energy system? What does that portfolio need to be? How do I maintain reliability? And nuclear kept showing up as part of a solution set that should be available. And so this conversation has expanded from, I think, a, a smaller niche of, of advocates to a broader coalition of people looking for a range of solutions. And nuclear is just part of that toolkit. And it really has taken things that seemed unfathomable, say, 10 years ago, now just is part of the law.
0: Well, aren't, aren't there dollars at stake here, too? Uh, aren't, aren't they? Um providing grants of some sort uh, on the state level? Uh, Again, I'm hazy, I I apologize. So if you go back,
1: um, say, eight years ago or so, the real problem that we're facing on the nuclear side is that even perfectly well-running nuclear plants, were facing the prospect of early closure. We, as as natural gas prices fell so far, power prices fell with them, expenses were losing money. And in spite of the fact they were, in many cases, the largest source of carbon-free power in these states, they were going to be uh, driven to closure. We started to see states begin to step in and say, well, wait a second. I've got these strategies that are saying I'm going to be carbon-free in my state. I can't lose my largest source. So states like New York, Illinois, New Jersey, Connecticut, all went forward with policies to ensure that that carbon-free element of what nuclear is providing was also part of the calculus. And that stemmed the tide of closures that were facing. We've seen Washington begin to catch up. Um, The Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law also had provisions in there to ensure that the operating nuclear plants themselves uh, had resources available to ensure that they were gonna stay in operation too. And so we really have seen a, a change and an incentive it's from the policy making front to say keep what you've got and go find up avenues to build more and this has been a i think we're still trying to really internalize what this means because it has been such a dramatic change from what we're used to
0: it was an interesting contrast uh from the time i started working at exelon they they were making uh, quite a quite a bit of money off of their nuclear fleet at the time because natural gas prices were so high. They brought me in to help them communicate uh, or defend the wholesale markets that they were that they were operating in. And then mm-hmm. gas prices fell, and uh, the competitive market became less desirable. Is there a feeling among your membership that? one kind of economic model is better than the other? The competitive market is probably not viewed that well versus the traditional monopoly based price regulation.
1: Well, I think it's safe to say that um, those that are not in competitive wholesale markets are not enthusiastic about entering them. I think that as you look at the challenges that these Uh, competitive markets have had and just creating the market rules, Um, how to maintain reliability, how to incentivize that. Um, Why is it I'm seeing um, these shortage events, especially in the wintertime, what is that creating for customers and pricing? And so I think that for, for those who aren't operating in these markets, there's a lot of suspicion around whether they create the right incentives for having that long-term investment profile, not just for nuclear, but for the, the overall approach towards maintaining reliability while trying to um, meet some of these carbon commitments. I, I think for those who are more in the markets themselves, I think they've seen, they've been working to try to make them as effective as possible. And um, I don't know if they're in a hurry to see that uh, upended dramatically, but you know, As I've watched these power markets evolve, they were, in many cases, built to solve a problem. And now I'm grappling with the idea that what I'm looking towards might be a different problem and how well these markets designed to uh, actually uh, make sure I can accomplish those new goals as opposed to the ones I started with. And it's going to be a challenge.
0: Well, it's certainly preoccupying the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission at this point. Indeed. Why is exporting U.S. nuclear technology abroad important to the
1: industry domestically? So there's two things about that, at least two things. I'll, I'll start with two. It's important to the industry domestically because that same challenge that we we're talking about earlier for new construction, that supply chain, building up that capability, um, I can you know, look at the ability to send new and nuclear technology abroad as a way to build that supply capability, so create that expertise. So my learning effect isn't just building the ones in the United States, it's building the ones all around the world. And so as I see the appetite, the interest for these US technologies abroad, it creates that foundation for working with that learning for getting the, the um, better at the uh, manufacturing and construction. But it's also important, the national security perspective as well. So when we have a nuclear project that we build in a different country, that's cementing essentially a hundred year relationship between the construction, the operation for more than half a century, the eventual decommissioning. This is something that really ties nations together. And as we've what we are seeing with Russia over the last 16 months or so, uh, the, whom you choose as partners can matter a lot. And mm-hmm. Russia has been very aggressive in trying to export their designs, China as well. And as potential countries look at this, I think there's an appreciation that this is more than just a commercial power plant that you're building. It's also a longstanding standing relationship with a partner that you're going to be engaged with going forward for decades. That, that choice matters a lot.
0: I'm going to do a follow-up question to the discussion about uh, the markets versus price regulation. The decisions to go forward with the, the uh, new nuclear builds in uh, the Southeast, um, the only one that's progressed is uh, the Vogel one in Georgia. Uh, You know, I was working for Exelon, whose footprint was pretty firmly in the competitive market model. And based on the market model, even at that time when they were making handsome profits from the plants, they weren't about to undertake a new build in a competitive market. Should we provide out-of-market incentives so that we can get them built outside of the Southeast?
1: So I think that one of the challenges that I see with the competitive markets is that things like carbon don't show up in that calculus. I have a capacity market, maybe. Um, and those incentives tend to change because I've never quite broken the code and how exactly I want that to work. So um, often going back and changing what that capacity market looks like. Um, The energy market doesn't try to factor this in. We keep waiting for some kind of carbon price that will come in and then create a signal that says, aha, that part of a nuclear plant's more valuable now. Right now it's priced at zero. And so I think that you have a a general challenge of how I expect to see a transition towards lower carbon technologies emerge in some of these places, uh, the competitive markets. There have been some solutions that say, at the state level, I'll just create mandates that say a certain percentage of your generation has to come from this set of technologies. Right now, I'll do it that way, which is kind of out of market forcing function. Um, and I think that while those have focused on renewables as the, the, the um, portfolio standards, you can think about expanding that to all forms of carbon regeneration. Right? And then nuclear has a role to play alongside that as well. Right now, I think that the competitive wholesale markets are really well designed to optimize how I think about using natural gas for generation and capacity for that. But I don't see a whole lot of evidence that I've got a, a robust enough set of signals to move beyond, um that technology set. And so as I look towards this transition, I think about places like New England that um are challenged in how much they can rely on natural gas. well how, how do I use those market signals to create um the investment in the technologies that are consistent with the policy making that is happening there And you know this is again, going to be a really big challenge over the next decade and it's bigger than nuclear. But I think how I look about the opportunity for nuclear involves. Well, what are, what are the signals I'm seeing, and are they coming from why designed in the wholesale markets, or are there other policy signals that are going to help create that sign that says, "Yeah, this is this is where we need to go"?
0: Does NEI have a policy on a carbon tax?
1: So our policy is that we are supportive of any policy that recognizes nuclear's attributes, and so we don't push for a carbon tax itself. I think there are other ways that have been more constructive, in particular, the tax credits for carbon free, the technology neutral tax credits are very consistent with the kinds of things we've been talking about. So we're we're pleased to see that. We recognize that these conversations are one thing when they're being held among economists um, and technocrats. It's another thing when they're held in political conversations and, the politics around a carbon tax are remain challenging, but I think what we're seeing from policymakers is the search for other tools that can create the right kinds of incentives, like tax credits, um, that could create a similar effect. And so I think in that regard, we're still optimistic in the, the way that nuclear could fit as part of this future and still looking for the, the, the toolkits that will help us to get there.
0: Well, certainly, public perception is a huge problem uh, f- for for the industry. I mean, we we, we talked about the safety issue, um, but I, as as you alluded to, uh, it, you know, other than Chernobyl, which didn't have a containment, um, the containment vessel has worked in in terms of t- Three Mile Island. Did it, did it work for Fukushima, or did did it fail?
1: No, there was. Uh no fatalities from radiation at fukushima
0: we had three mile island that was a big setback then chernobyl was it became a perception issue even though it had nothing to do with u.s nuclear and um fukushima we saw germany actually increase their carbon footprint rather than continue with nuclear uh, that's a whole different discussion but now we've got Russia in Ukraine holding a nuclear plant uh, hostage and threatening to do with it, much like they did with the hydropower dam that flooded the lower part of the country. Uh, I, I, I certainly hope for the sake of Ukrainians, not necessarily for the industry, that nothing comes to pass there. How close are you watching that situation as an association?
1: We're certainly watching it. Um, and. I you think know, finding reliable information has been um, something of a an ongoing challenge, it's not unexpected. The International Atomic Energy Administration, the uh, agency of the UN, has been an important voice and intermediary overseeing that. I would expect Russia to think about the Zaporizhzhia nuclear plant in the same way it thinks about some of the other infrastructure. I mean, part of it, I say that is because Russia itself has very long-term strategic uh, interest in having nuclear energy being a viable strategic outcome. They they want to sell reactors too. Um, And so I don't, I'm I'm alarmed by how they've uh, thought about that facility and how they've treated it. But I, I don't know that I expect sabotage or that in quite the same way. But I think it does speak to the notion that you know, as I look towards the strategic relationships, um, you know, these things are valuable. And uh, I think it, uh, understanding the ability to create that much power and what it means for trying to debilitate the economy of Ukraine, this was an, uh, as something that they saw as a, a, a strategic op- opportunity for, for them in their conflict, which, uh, you know, that power plant is not producing energy it's shut down. And so it's in that regard, it has served to help sever that large source of power from the economy as a whole. And yeah, from my point of view, the ability to have a large scale ability to produce um, reliable electricity is valuable. It just needs to be secured. And this is, you know, Actions of Russia have been completely uh, outrageous and uh, that I think is rightly met with a great deal of of concern from partners around the world. Well, let's just hope it's a big bluff. It it certainly
0: is concerning. I've gone through all of my notes here, Matt, as I as I do with every guest. I want to offer you an opportunity to bring up anything that we haven't discussed that you think is relevant uh, at this point.
1: Just one thing comes to mind. You, you mentioned public perception. You know, one thing that I'm certainly keenly um, interested in is how to think about how different generations look at nuclear. What we're seeing is a lot of openness towards nuclear energy from the younger generation, um, for whom I think climate change is the seem to be the biggest environmental uh, challenge of the day. Um, the, the kinds of Challenges that we saw from the 70s around nuclear aren't quite showing up in the same way. That There are bigger problems on the board from the how I think about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And nuclear is, I think, being seen as one of those tools that can help do that. And so I do anticipate that as we see um, continued... Evolution of this conversation that nuclear will be seen less exceptional as it might have 50 years ago. I think that's a good sign, both in terms of um, what the technology can provide, but also um, how it's viewed as one of the technologies going to help to create a portfolio of solutions. I think that's real progress. Matt
0: Crozat of the Nuclear Energy Institute. Thank you very much.